0: Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson, CEO of Peak Prosperity, here with a very special guest. I'm very excited to have with us today uh, the chicken little itself, uh, Doomberg. Doomberg, welcome to the program. So good to have you here today.
1: Chris, you know, long time in the making. Really thrilled, actually, to be able to speak with you today. I know it's going to be a great discussion.
0: It Indeed it is. And so for people who aren't familiar with you, a little background because you really came out of for me nowhere may of 2021 an article comes out you developed a very rapid following uh you built everything around social media Substack being a primary place Doomberg.substack.com. everybody should subscribe but you just uh you really came on the scene um rather suddenly in in, in great style as far as i'm aware so so what can you tell us about your background your interest in and in why why you started writing about these things you know
1: it's it's Kind of fun to hear you say that. Uh, obviously, there's no such thing as an overnight success, and um, there's a lot of, you know, decades of experience and practice and know-how that go into creating a project like this. But um, we're, we're a very small team of former industrial executives from the commodity sector. Um, we had um, built up a, a pretty reasonable consulting firm advising high net worth individuals, family offices, and and C-suite executives on all things energy, commodities, markets, science, and finance. And uh, you know, COVID hit. And like a lot of small business owners, it it was really damaging to our business. I think at at our apex, we probably lost 85% of our revenue over a period of 60 days. And we like to characterize that as a a high pucker factor (laughs) moment for the members of our team. And then what do you do? And do you reinvent yourself or do you split up and go try and get a job? And and, uh, on the advice of a pretty famous hedge fund manager, we decided to reinvent ourselves. And we began consulting in the content creation space. And in particular, the subset of people who create content that is predominantly consumed by Wall Street. And that was quite life changing. And, you know, ter- take that lemon and turn it into lemonade. We learned a lot about the space. And by the time May of 2021 rolled around on the advice of one of our clients, we decided to start our own thing. But we were well prepared to execute based on a disciplined strategy. And we've shared many aspects of that strategy with our subscribers as we built this following along the way. And it is truly what we were meant to be doing with our lives. And uh, one of my strongest piece of advice that I give to my children and to anybody who listens is when you find what you were meant to be doing in life, you just keep doing it. That's not that complicated. And um, we write six to eight articles a month on energy finance and the economy at large, whatever catches our interest. Um, The thing that I think differentiates Denver from most other content creators that serve Wall Street is we come from the industrial perspective. We bring that lens of industry. And most people with relevant industrial experience are prohibited from freely expressing themselves on the topics of the day. And um, so we're sort of competing against uh, academicians and people from government, you know, sort of professional pontificators, as we would call them. And we bring the real practical lens. Um, and, and so um, I think that's something that really resonates with our audience. And and again, you know, uh, we we have, I'm a scientist by training, we have pretty strong finance background on our team as well. And so that combination of explaining basic you know, fundamental scientific uh, concepts in language that financial professionals can understand and then internalize into their own investment decision-making processes is, I think, the thing that makes Doomberg unique. And, um, and so we're just going to keep doing it. It's really just a thrill to do. Imagine waking up every day and doing what you were meant to be doing in your life and uh, making a living doing it. It's, it's truly a thrill.
0: Well... I get to do that too. So, uh, you know, from, uh, I'm just thrilled to be able to do that. And it took me, it took me a while. I'll be honest. I, I did a lot of things. I, I found out what I was good at by doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Um, it took me a while to get there, but I'm, I'm not afraid to take those risks and jumps. And so I I'm blessed because I wake up every day doing what I, I know my strongest core strengths are meant to do. And, um, it's a, it's an incredible blessing, but the key, if anybody said, Hey, how did you get where you are? My answer would be persistence. Um, you know, so you say six to eight articles per month that you, that you guys are writing, uh, that's just how that is. When you get into that lifestyle, it's amazing, but you, you've got to, you've got to, you got to keep at it, right? There's no like, well, yeah, bad month. We're taking it off. You know, that doesn't, so that doesn't it, it's funny you should say that because one thing we pride
1: ourselves on is our readers never know when we go on vacation. They never know. Yeah. Like we don't take holidays at least outwardly. Um, mm-hmm. we, we we live to delight our ideal clients, who are our paying subscribers, of course. And um, we we again, when it's not work, you know, when you when you get to do what you are doing all day, as opposed to having to do uh, something all day, right. it's a it's a world of difference. And yeah. and truly, one of the things that we're most proud of is that we have not lost sight of the fact of just how fortunate we are to have created this. But like you mentioned, this is probably our the eighth incarnation of various business efforts that we've had over the years together as a small team. And some of them worked very well. Some of them failed spectacularly, and all of them taught us something and led to the product that we've been able to develop to today. And we have incorporated you know, the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly from our prior experiences, and we've had them all. And, and as anybody who's tried to carve out a life on their own and eat what you kill, as we like to say, um, yeah, uh, you know it, it when you do finally conquer it, it it it's important to not lose sight of of the foundation of work that went into it and the joy that you should be able to extract by having accomplished it we celebrate it as families um we we, we are we don't take for granted a single day or nor a single subscriber um this could go away at any moment and we're going to savor every day where it's uh, where it's flourishing like it is now
0: well said well said and, and um I think you left something out of your secret sauce, too, which is incredibly creative communication. Um, You know, I come away from every article learning something. You do great framing uh, and context. And these are things that I think are fundamentally missing judgment time from our our larger dialogue that's going on out there. Uh, COVID was just an absolute travesty of missing context. You know, everybody should get a shot. Really healthy 12 year olds. I mean, it was just like there was all the nuance evaporated. Everything we knew about science had just sort of like went poof and. Um, it was a bizarre moment and the opportunity though, is that for people who can actually provide context, treat their audience with respect as if they are other intelligent adults, which they are, um, and, and then communicate, uh, take the time people will value that. And so I think
1: no question, no question about it for both of us here.
0: um, this, this is the market
1: inefficiency that the traditional media has left open for people like us to go and exploit and, um, thank them for doing so. And, and as you say, um, in our hyperpolarized, hyperpolitical environment, um, the the potential for nuanced conversation, where people of you know intelligent backgrounds with you know uh, a good track record of of learning and listening can uh, debate, disagree, uh, figure out the exact points where they disagree, and then come to terms, that's just not allowed anymore. But people still hunger for it, and so it is the alternative media, like Substack. That is facilitating such conversations, and to the extent that Substack has been, you know, um, consistent with their core of freedom of expression and free speech, which is really foundational to the country, we're going to stick by them as partners, and and um, and so anything we can do to help them, and vice versa, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimately we're strong believers in regression to the mean, and and the media has gotten so out of whack from everyday life, and so partisan and so one-sided, in their analysis, so gaslighting. I mean, people know when they're being gaslit, and mm-hmm. and this is the exact
0: inefficiency in the market
1: that allows brands like ours to flourish.
0: Exactly. So I, I want to go to some of that gaslighting, and and some of it is just gaslighting and it's annoying. Some of it is dangerous. So one area I'm I'm really excited to get you on for um, to help me understand it, help our listeners understand it better is let. Can we talk about green energy for a bit? Um, and and in particular, I I. What's left of my hair stood on end. It was a couple months ago. I'm reading about just by an example. New York State, New York State's legislature says, hey, we're going to put laws legislatively pass laws. Governor signs them to eliminate gas peaker plants. That's like 50% of their electricity production at certain points. We're just going to get rid of those because they wanted to foster a more market-friendly environment for green energy adoption, which I likened in a piece I wrote to, to this is Cortez, 15, whatever. Sailing across an ocean. His sailors are a little like not interested in doing much. So he burned the boats and it's like, no way, but forward. We got to go into the jungle guys. <laughs> you know? And so that's what I, uh, how do we interpret what's going on there? I know you just wrote about Ontario, the energy, the end in Germany. To me, this isn't just, this feels dangerous to me because what they're really saying is we're going to force adoption of a technology that doesn't seem to have a, a market force behind it. And we have no way of proving that this we can subsist on this alone, or that it can regenerate or rebuild itself, and on and on. How, where do you fall on, on on that story? Like, how do we begin to interpret what these people are up to? It's it's
1: fascinating that you leave with this question because I just saw a really amazing chart from my good friend um, Nate Hagens, who who does a really amazing job at thinking deeply about these energy problems. And it and this chart, which I'll I'll describe, um, shows just how rapidly the incremental benefit of a stable grid falls off as you uh, encounter grid instability. And it's mm. several percentage points of of reliability um, that you need to lose before the vast majority of the benefit of a just-in-time, always-on stable grid accrues to society. And the, the um, example that you've mentioned is just the latest manifestation in what we would call utter energy ignorance uh, on the part of our state leaders who have spent no time in industry, have no relevant scientific training, and yet are uh, feel emboldened to undo the work of the generations that have come before us to provide us with this amazing, reliable, always on grid, that is the core foundation um, from which every other aspect of modern society flourishes. And um, peaker plants um, in particular, for those that aren't familiar, are basically the backup grid that is necessitated by the forced introduction of intermittent weather-dependent renewable energy sources like solar and wind. Then we can all pretend like these um, fancy green projects are nothing more than nuances, but at a point when they become a bigger and bigger portion of the grid, um, they do begin to threaten that grid reliability. And If you go from 99.99% 99.99% reliable grid to 97% reliable grid, you've lost way more than 3% of the benefits of a grid. Uh, industries can't produce, uh, you know, manufacturing sectors leave. Um, you know, the, 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 the grid reliability is table stakes for a modern first world developed economy. And we have lost sight of that. So this generation, you know, um, energy comes from a light switch. They flick the switch and the light comes on. There's no direct visceral understanding for the men and women working in the energy sector who provide all of the necessary resources to make that happen, to make that miracle happen. I mean, our society today would be indistinguishable from magic to people just 100 years ago, 50 years ago in most of the country, actually. Um, And so we take this for granted. We are arrogant about it, actually, is the word that I would use. And um, the environmentalists, radicals Malthusian anti-humans that form the the genesis of the modern uh, you know the Sierra Club and Greenpeace and so on uh, their intent is to destroy our lifestyle because they view human flourishing as necessarily degrading nature quote unquote um, and so it doesn't surprise me that the 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 fools in charge of the New York State um, grid have decided that they no longer need peaker plants that they can just um, you know, uh, make do when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and they don't need the reliable fossil fuel powered uh, facilities to m- make up for um, w- when the weather doesn't, um, doesn't turn enough. And by the way, it will, like it's inevitable that there will be doldrums where the wind doesn't blow and its nighttime. And there's no amount of quote unquote capacity that you can install that would circumvent the need for grid reliability. And so um, our view is there's a finite amount of pain that needs to be absorbed before people reconcile with physics we hope that that pain isn't very high we suspect it's higher than most people realize and ultimately um, there will be a revolt and these foolish policies will be overturned
0: my concern and uh, thank you for that because that, that comports with a lot of what i i think as well although i'm not as, as deeply imbued in the industry and how it actually operates but i i studied carefully enough to know that um the, the one thing that worries me the most is grid down. If we get the grid down, that's more than anything else, more than a pandemic, more than practically anything, except maybe thermonuclear war or something. But grid down, that's that just ends life as we know it and possibly life for a lot of folks. Um, you know, if you've seen the one second after or, you know, uh, read any of Alice Miller's, you know, when the trucks don't move kind of thing, it, it's very central. And so they're really playing with our. Our. Um, well, our prosperity, if not our lives. And, but I'm just how do you have an explanation yet for how that energy ignorance got so widespread that it, it, it seems to have infected the Germans, a lot of the UK, a good chunk of Europe, um, Canada, the United States? Like, how did where did this come from, this set of ideas?
1: It's truly a luxury of the rich. Um, if you're struggling yeah. to have a reliable grid, you're not foolish enough to to bet the, the, the future of your prosperity on on the weather um and so um a whole generation of people have been sold a big lie and the big lie is this there is a path to decarbonization that involves no sacrifice and our refusal to embark on that path is because of corrupt fossil fuel companies that's a just a giant lie there's no other way to say it like um 85 of our total energy still comes from fossil fuels today despite spending trillions of dollars trying to diversify away from it it's a foolish uh, endeavor and um, there's certainly no path to any meaningful decarbonization that doesn't run squarely through nuclear power, the highest energy dense um, source of primary energy available to humankind today. And uh, to think that we could turn back the clock to, to go back to burning biomass and, and capturing the wind um, is somehow progress. of uh, The big lie, oh, look, we could, we could decarbonize. There's just going to be an awful lot of dead people and mm-hmm. an awful lot of riots and uh, social unrest. Civil disobedience um, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot, and the people will riot. And our progressives um, lose sight of the path function. The path function matters, hmm. and and the speed with which they are uh, assuming that we must decarbonize in the uh, you know uh, at the altar of of the uh, of the uh, of the god of carbon as we call it um, that th- this is. I mean, it's just, it's the luxury of the rich. It's utter nonsense. And uh, it won't be put up with for long. The, the only question is country by country, at which point does the rubber band break? And uh, I think Germany is leading the pack um, in their um, foolishness, the, the dive over the energy cliff, as we we have once uh, described it. And the deindustrialization that has quickly resulted as a consequence was utterly predictable. Would have been a lot worse if if last winter had been even, slightly colder than luckily it turned out to be. But uh, in the U.S., we're not immune from such nonsense. Uh, California and New England are doing their best uh, impersonations of Germany. Uh, in December, just as one small anecdote, the price of natural gas in Europe, uh, in, in California spiked at $55 a million BTU. And at the exact same time in Texas and the Permian Basin, the price of natural gas went negative. They couldn't give it away. Mm. Uh, why? There's no pipelines to connect the two regions. And so California, the, the citizens of that country, when they needed energy the most, had to pay through the nose for it. And, um, you know, at some point, the, 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 when people have to degrade their standard of living enough, um, they will revolt.
0: Let's hope it's peaceful. Let's hope. Let's hope. Now, let's imagine for the moment, setting aside some of the technical issues, that, that the path to alternative energy was viable. My concern is that I read people like Professor uh, Simon Michaud, and he says, hey, there seems to be some resource constraints here just mining throughput, even if the ore grades were there, which is questionable, but just the pace at which we would have to mine things exceeds any possible parameters I can get my head around. But then, you know, I read things like out of Stanford, you know, you got there, um, who's like guy Toby, uh, anyway, uh, you know, the, the professor there who says, this is easy, we can do this, and it's going to pay for itself in spades. All we have to do is get serious about electrifying the grid and, and cars and stuff like that. He makes it seem easy. Of course, that professor as far as i know never worked in a manufacturing facility in his life or mine so maybe doesn't quite know what's involved where do you fall on that um spectrum of can't do it it's easy uh
1: can't do it i mean it, it's it's it, all you have to do is consult physics look we have a phrase around the chicken coop um yep. and we like to say it divisively um it works in universities As you say, like everything works great on a spreadsheet. Um, Another way to say it is uh, in a world with no constraints, anything is possible. Um, But ultimately, um, you must confront your constraints. Um, They they cannot be circumvented. And especially when your constraints are the laws of physics. Um, What do you think powers all of those giant machines that extract the low grade ore that send it to the mills where it gets ground and pulverized into fine powder and then it gets floated? Uh, with various forms of chemicals, which produces all manner of waste that need to be treated and separated, and the entropic penalties that need to be paid in order to make that happen, just to produce a concentrate, which then gets shipped to a smelter, where it gets heated to enormous temperatures. And um, these metals are further separated uh, into their pure form so that they can then be shipped to manufacturing facilities, where they get recombined with the elements that they were uh, originally discovered with in nature, but in a more controlled way to make things like you know, zinc coated um, steel for automobiles and so on. All of this stuff comes with a fundamental energy penalty, and almost all of it is paid by fossil fuels today. And there's no amount of wind turbines or, or solar panels um, that is going to allow us to circumvent that fundamental penalty of physics. Um, you could calculate it. It's there. It's undeniable. It's fact. It's not even speculation. And so um, to see the AOCs of the world in New York, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, talk down to the engineers uh, and the scientists and the, the patriots who built this country, who laid down the foundation of uh, uh, of the infrastructure that we have. That we're all really decapitalizing today. We are, um, you know, monetizing the uh, energy investments of generations that have come before us um, as we uh, stand around and wait for everybody to regain their senses. And uh, the big question is, how far do we stretch that band before it breaks?
0: Well, I want to talk about that because um so, but before I get there let let's let's get into the I guess the meat of this, which then is where do you fall on the um what some people call a theory I call it a geologic observation of peak oil
1: uh we would fade peak oil I think um peak oil is a concept for techno pessimists and, and i I think that the you know, for those who have never worked in the commodity sector—they have a perhaps superficial understanding of the deep level of brilliance, expertise, technology, and engineering that is deployed each and every day to keep the lights on. And um, these people, you know, with the full force of capitalism um, as the wind in their sails, are forever inventing um, increased efficiency, new technologies. And I do think that the, um, the the primary limitation to our ability to discover and exploit fossil fuels is regulatory and political. It is not technical and, and not even really financial. And so um, we could perhaps impose peak oil on ourselves out of choice, but uh, we, we are um, deeply bullish, the human spirit. Uh, we don't suspect that we will be running short on um, economically developable uh, developable fossil fuel um, resources, um, our ability to convert, you know, uh, resources into reserves, um, uh, scales with our technological development and our progress in that regard. And, and you know, not barely a day goes by where we don't see, you know, improvements in computing and engineering and, and drilling and, and the science that backs these highly technical companies. You know, it always amuses me when people think that Google and Facebook are, are technology companies, if you ever visited the headquarters of Saudi Aramco uh, or ExxonMobil, you would know what a true technology company is.
0: Mm, interesting. Now, I, I take slightly the other side of that. I mean, globally, I know there's a lot out there still because they haven't even begun to do the horizontal drilling in any of the very, very rich shale layers that, that underlie much of the Middle East, Of uh, the Vaca Muerta in Argentina. Politically, it's a nightmare to try and get to it. But man, that looks like an intense play. Um, it could rival the Permian from what I've seen, but, uh, the, the shale basins do come and they do go, you get through your tier one acreage relatively quickly. My concern is that our own energy information agency headed up by the inestimable Jennifer Granholm is still convinced that we have 30 years of 12 and a half million barrels per day coming out of combined things like that. I'm looking at this. I see we're, we're about two years away from getting through the prime tier one acreage in the Permian. We're already through it in the Bakken. Uh, already passed it in Eagleford. So those look to me like there's plenty of, there's stuff there. We'll get it. The technology will help. But in terms of getting more oil out, I don't so see it. I
1: would say, I would preface and your comment by saying that you, you pointed out the political environment in which these companies are operating. So they're two separate questions. Um, do I think that peak oil is inherently a thing? Yes or no. And do I think that, um, within the current constraints in the environment that we're operating, that we will see decreased production of oil, let's say in the U.S. or even globally? Those are two separate questions. And in fact, I would point you to a, a fascinating uh, announcement by ExxonMobil on June 1st, where they talked about how they had developed technologies that they believed would allow them to double um, the amount of oil they could produce from the existing shale patch um, over the next five years. And, and I go back to um, when you bet on peak oil as an inherent phenomenon, you are shorting human ingenuity. Now, if you're betting on peak oil as a political phenomenon and you're going long political incompetence, those are two very different bets. And so I don't think we're actually disagreeing. Um, I think if truly unfettered, um, we could produce um, all of the fossil fuels uh, that the world um, could afford. Uh, I, I, I don't believe that there is a fundamental... Uh, geographic constraint that society is rubbing up against. I do think there are political constraints, um, permitting, nuisance lawsuits, um, lack of return for investor capital because of those two things. And of course, management, uh, mismanagement on the part of the executives of these companies also doesn't help. Um, they tend to overproduce at all the wrong times, et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, from a geographic or geological perspective, I think we have many, many centuries of, of fossil fuels available to us if we have the political will to exploit them.
0: Hmm. I'd have to I'd have to look at that. I did read that Exxon thing and I ran it past some people who are actually in the fracking business said, does this pencil out? And they said, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, it, this idea that you're going to go in and refract holes, uh, seal them up and then punch new new holes in there. Delta P becomes a thing. And and it, when, once you depressurize a field, it. it it's very hard to get that back. Right. So I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to wait and see on that one, but I'm a wait and see guy on all kinds of technology. I want to get to that in a bit because I've been very skeptical of LK 99 room temperature superconducting, but I <laughs> extraordinary claims. I'm a, I'm a Missouri guy, I guess at heart. Show me. Um, so I'm really skeptical about these things. I've seen a lot of claims come and go. And, and so I'm, I'm I don't want to say I'm jaded, but I'm jaded. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well,
1: you may know that we put a piece out on this topic and, um, we, we titled it conducting diligence and we have developed over the years, you know, as, as a technology executive in the commodity space, um, barely a week went by when whoever was the CEO of the company I was employed at, I read something in a Wall Street Journal or Fortune Magazine and, and forwarded it to me and said, Hey, what do you think of this? Is this real? Um, mm-hmm. and so over time uh, we have developed a very simple five question framework for quickly analyzing such. Uh, momentous claims as the room temperature superconductor claim that recently made the news. Um, And and those five questions are actually very basic. And and we've used it now twice. We've used it for this. And then we recently used it for um, the development of a potential magic bullet for cancer, which was also making the headlines. And um, those five questions are very simple. Who is involved? Um, Where was it published? Where are we in the scientific process? What is the scientific context? And what should we expect next? And, and we walked through all five of those questions for the LK99 development. And um, you know if you go through them, and if you don't mind, I, I just might for your audience mm-hmm. here, um, no. you know, who is involved. Um, it seems from outside appearances that all of the scientists involved are properly trained and have reputations that they're betting and putting on the line here, which is fine. Um, so that one passes our screen. The next question is where it was published. And this is where things get a little dicey. This wasn't published in a peer reviewed journal. It was a preemptive preprint perhaps out of fear of being scooped. Uh, anybody can publish a preprint. It has not been peer-reviewed. It has not run, not yet run the gauntlet of peer-review. Um, where um, And look, it's imperfect, and we learned from COVID that all of these things can be corrupted. But by and large, most of the time, it works pretty well. Um, and, and so for a claim as spectacular as this, it would have been helpful if the media waited until a respectable journal lent the credibility of its editorial process uh, to the work, which they have not. And that's not the world we live in anymore, so that's fine. Um, Where are we in the scientific process? Look, none of this matters until somebody replicates it. Um, People can make a claim. Um, The good news is that the experimental procedures described in the preprint are comparatively simple. Um, We were going to write a follow-up piece where we were going to describe how high-throughput heterogeneous synthesis would basically obliterate this entire space in very short order if it was real. Um, You could run thousands of experiments a day with minor nuance changes to temperature ramp, oxygen content, various reagents, and the uh, chemical industry would would very, very quickly map up the entire space uh, post-haste if this were real. We've not yet seen in the weeks that have since passed um, any confirmation of that, which gives us significant pause. And then the scientific context is that this, this is a field that is replete with false claims, fraud, um, retracted papers, uh, misunderstandings, and so on. And, um, and the leap that was described here is so profound. It's not like I mean we've gone from like liquid helium and liquid nitrogen, like the coldest temperatures imaginable, to um, room te- not just room temperature superconductivity, but superconductive properties above the boiling point of water. And that's just such a chasm that it belies belief. And then you know, and what should we expect next? And um, given the fact that everything is so simple, uh, we should expect this to resolve very soon. Um, and there's only two possible outcomes. These results will be confirmed or a fundamental misinterpretation of the data will be, will be revealed. And, and we do believe that that would have been caught in peer review, which is probably what's going to happen based on our continued observation of the attempts to replicate this stuff. And, and we, we concluded that piece with our verdict um, you know, all the way back on July 28th, which was, um, we'd be thrilled if this were true. Um, yeah. count, us, count us as deeply skeptical. Um, and as we said in the piece, quote, the leap is too far the methods too simple and the process too premature to get excited um and uh, for the sake of the players involved we certainly hope it's true um and we'd be more than happy to be proven wrong but we suspect uh, that we won't be
0: well for people listening uh the idea of a room temperature superconductor would change life as we know it it would be amazing it would be amazing you could you could have a cable the thickness of my finger it would carry as much current as like as many pow- big power lines as you've ever seen strung up on a high tension wire. It, it would be astonishing with no losses. It would be amazing. I would, More than I that, would...
1: it, 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 the most important aspect of room temperature conductors, in our view, is it would it was very quickly enable quantum computing, which would change the world in, in calculable ways. Um, and so, I mean, I, I joked with a few of the Bitcoin maxis that we interact yeah. with that, that that would be the end of the Bitcoin network because you could easily hack it. Um, And so this would be uh, the way we described it to our clients is that this would be an invention on par with fission and the
0: development of semiconductors. It'd be astonishing. So extraordinary claims. Now, it was just a paper came out this morning that I saw for the first time from Beijing University where they recreated the material. Um, and they found that it actually had small little discontinuous chunks within a larger chunk of ferromagnetic properties that then behaved like you would expect on a magnet. So uh, they did they debunked the Meissner effect at least in this one paper. so not surprised um, it looked like it might be an artifact of of crystal um, how the crystals grow.
1: Yeah, we would be deeply deeply skeptical of a leap this far. that um, you know, we described the synthetic methods involved as kitchen chemistry, which was not to be, derogatory in any way but the methods are so simple that um i just know from direct personal experience that the major material science and chemical companies could re- that the materials involved are very simple right like lead and copper and mm-hmm. sulfur um, they mm-hmm. could ground and pound this stuff out and I'm, I'm sure they're all doing it i've reached out to a few of our contacts in industry you know a officer level people at, at these, these types of companies. And they're all in the same boat, deeply skeptical, have to check. The board is pressuring them. Is this real? What does this mean for our business? Uh, we've not yet seen, you know, it, let's go back to cold fusion, which is perhaps the most famous, uh, example, mm-hmm. example of such a, an amazing claim, Pons and Fleischmann. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but you know, out of the, well,
0: I am, I followed that yeah. really closely in the day. So did I. Yeah. I remember the
1: very famous American chemical society meeting in Dallas. That was, that turned into really just a frenzy. Um, uh, you might remember that early on, a couple of institutions really debased themselves by, by prematurely claiming they had replicated the results, and it turned out that they too had made some mistakes in their experimental procedures. And over time, um, once the serious scientists came in and tried to replicate things, it it turned out that it was, it was not real. And I, if if you told me that I had to bet my mortgage on one of the two outcomes, uh, I would bet on it not being real, which is rather unfortunate because I think it does. Do damage to the reputation of science when Mm -hmm. the media hypes these things. As we said in the piece, you know, roughly about once a quarter, Mm a um, a, an advance, a proclaimed advance in the world of science makes the leap into mainstream media's hype cycle, and this, of course, triggers a wave of inquiries from our subscribers. And yeah, good news for us is it gives us stuff to write about, of course. But uh, yeah, so (laughs) but we would be deeply skeptical.
0: Well, so uh, I went into peak oil. And uh, this detour was actually important and relevant to it, because when we're thinking through this, I think the thing I'm combating, such as it is, is for the people who are like, well, you know, we're Americans. And so here's what's going to happen, even if it turns out, you know, Chris Doomberg, that, you know, we get this grid instability. We're smart and we'll figure it out. Right. Um, And my concern is that it takes just. And so this is more of a political question than anything. Nobody wants these windmills in their backyard. Nobody wants another nuclear plant in their backyard. The regulatory burden for creating these new things is is miles deep. We don't know how to unwind our regulatory burden. We can add to it. That's easy, right? And my concern is that we're going to get to this future state and go, oh, we got to build a lot of stuff that requires energy. Where does that energy actually come from? Well, it's going to have to come from oil. At that point, based on everything I'm tracking in the world in terms of who's got what, I see China is by far now the world's number one importer of oil and on a rocket sled. They're going to keep that process going. I can see a point in the future where the United States has to then compete for adequate energy supplies to do what it needs to do, which is to begin the expensive energy intensive process of rebuilding its its core energy infrastructure from the ground up. We might not have the labor there. Let's leave that aside for the moment. I'm just worried energetically that we're going to be in competition at a crisis moment I don't know. I, I feel like um, past performance is not indicative of future success. I'm very worried that we're going to face a future that nobody knows really how to deal with because it hasn't been part of our past.
1: So there's a, a, some positive spins that we could put on the situation, especially for the U.S. relative to other countries. And of course, when it comes to you know geopolitics, these are all relative competitions. Um I agree on oil, although we, we are blessed with an enormous amount of oil in the US. And we have, luckily because of um, nuances in the way in which um, our regulatory regime works, certain states have pretty good control over permitting and so on, and Louisiana and Texas, and Oklahoma, and, and the, the various you know the anchors of our energy future. One thing that we are blessed with, um, which we are not yet fully taking advantage of is an enormous amount of natural gas, which in many ways is a similarly useful molecule uh, to oil if for no other reason than, um, yes, of course, we can't refine it into gasoline, but we can burn it to produce heat, which is an enormous uh, use of energy uh, in the U.S. And um, it, North, you know, uh, New England and, and California notwithstanding, the pipeline infrastructure exists to support most of the U.S. from this bounty. And, you know, at $2.50 per million BTU. Henry Hub, whatever the number is today, it's somewhere in that range. You know, that's the equivalent of $15 a barrel oil for a really high pure, easy-to-burn, energy-intense molecule. Like we 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 cook in our kitchens with natural gas and and don't even think about ventilation, but one would never fire up the barbecue in your kitchen. You wouldn't burn a bunch of coal um, you know, in an unventilated area in your house. Um, it, we we are we are a major producer of natural gas, and just to give you a bit of a sort of uh, McKinsey interview estimate sort of question comparison, um, the amount of natural gas that we flare or vent, which is a bit of a scandal, uh, and export. If you sum all that up, you know via LNG exports, that's roughly the same amount of coal that we burn. Uh, in the U.S. today. like We could replace the amount of coal that we burn from an energy content basis with the um, natural gas that we flare, burn, uh, vent, and and export. And this is, by the way, at $2.50 a million BTU. Imagine if uh, natural gas were priced at anywhere near parity for oil. You know, at at, uh, about a $82 WTI today, um, you're looking at $12, $13 $12, $13 a million BTU in natural gas, I can assure you at uh, 13 or $14 per million BTU natural gas, we could produce a hell of a lot more natural gas than we're producing today. And um, and this is really a a significant asset in the US repertoire that makes us an energy superpower. Yes, we still import certain forms of oil. We export certain forms of oil that our refining network is not really capable of, of receiving. But um, compared to other countries, we are... Um, broadly at first level uh, energy independent. And that's with a hand and a half tied behind our back.
0: Yeah, not me. I live in New England. So um, <laughs> you're screwed, <that'd> be, buddy. <laughs> I'm screwed. I'm a third world importing nation over here uh, because I live literally a short hop in a skip by pipeline from the world. If it was a country, it would be the world's third largest natural gas producing country. And that's Correct. the Marcellus. It's it's right there. And Elizabeth Warren's like, no, we're environmentalists, no pipelines. We have to liquefy our, our natural gas and import it by LNG terminal in Boston. It's horrifying. You me. get it from Trinidad and Tobago. It's uh, horrible. And you pay
1: European prices. We wrote a piece in December of 2021 in the early days of Doomburg. You'd appreciate this title. Um, and I remember it because I love that piece. New England is an energy crisis waiting to happen. <laughs> and um, we've talked through all of this, the Jones Act and the inability to take you know, but for a pipeline, the kingdom was lost. You know, you're talking about <laughs> 150 miles away from Appalachia, where, you, as you say, like, build the damn pipelines. Um, this is how, by the way, at SoCal, you have $55 per 1000000 natural gas in December. And in uh, the Waha Hub and in, um, in the Permian, they're, they're giving it away because it's associated in gas. It's produced with oil. It's a byproduct. And byproduct economics are funny that way. But in Boston, as you mentioned, um, we import via LNG carriers, non-U.S. flagged, of course, to satisfy the Jones Act. Um, you, you import liquefied natural gas from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, what a joke. When, when, when literally a pitching wedge away yeah. um, it sits this amazing abundance. And you know we wrote a piece again in that early 2021 20, days um, uh, about a, a reasonable strategy for U.S. energy. Like, um, we have such an abundance of natural gas. Uh, why don't we replace coal with our own natural gas? Build the pipelines that we need. You know, we could build a homegrown solar industry if we wanted to. Polysilicon is very energy intense, and we've outsourced that to China, who leverages you know dirty coal and slave labor. Mm-hmm. Um, a total renaissance with nuclear, and if we're going to electrify our vehicles, let's start with hybrids, where we make use of limited battery materials to abate as much gasoline as we can. Uh, these are all very sensible policies, far too sensible for any U.S. politician to implement in today's environment, unfortunately. But yes, if you live in New England, um, I would buy um, backup generators and a propane tank, and uh, I would uh, begin at home and protect my family accordingly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, all good advice that I give to my subscribers all the time. So I, I have a wood furnace in the basement, and otherwise it's oil. I have to burn mm-hmm. oil. I, I feel like someday my great-grandchildren, as yet unconceived unborn, are going to look back and say, you did what?
1: I mean, you're kind of burning diesel, right? I mean, yeah, oil, yeah. It's just it's got diesel. a different, this different dye. You know, yes. it's just amazing. And, um, but you know, I luckily for us, we live in natural gas country, and and um, mm. they've not yet mandated that we replace our furnaces with heat pumps.
0: <laughs> or your stove? Oh, it's coming though. You can feel it's coming, and and I just hope we can break this delusion. So, so as we close out this public portion, um, how do we how how do we begin influencing? T- give me some give me some hope here. Tell me that you are talking with people who get it and uh, that, that there's a great awakening happening and, and uh, our, our senses are returning.
1: Look, it's one conversation at a time. And I do think engaging in the political process as opposed to throwing your hands up in the air and just accepting mm-hmm. uh, our fate uh, it, it is, you know, I'd rather die trying um, than uh, timid. Uh, And I would give you one great example of of a friend of mine who's done, you know, as an individual citizen, an enormous amount of work It's our friend, uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer up in Canada, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, Um, one of the organizations that has enabled a complete about face in the political system in Canada, and a re-embracement of nuclear power. Um, This is a total like volunteer nonprofit organization that believes uh, in the power of nuclear energy and has done amazing work, even got a one on one meeting with um, Justin Trudeau, who we are, of course no fans of, but you know, we give credit where credit is due when your political opponents make the correct decision on something you care about. You should tip your hat and thank them for it, mm-hmm. much as we did when Gavin Newsom um, worked to save uh, Diablo Canyon in California. And so um uh, the the alternative to uh, not participating is despair. and um, we would rather, you know, we'd rather die trying.
0: Excellent. Well, so for everybody listening, um, of course, it's doomberg.substack.com. How else can people follow you? And by the way, I highly recommend everybody, you should uh, absolutely subscribe. I'm a subscriber, been a subscriber for a while. I get a lot from your material. It's it's really worth it. So uh, anywhere else they can follow you, because I know you're not on Twitter anymore, which is. So that's
1: pretty much it. We're all in on Substack, doomberg.substack.com. From there, you can see notes, which is Doomberg's Twitter competitor. You don't need to download an app to see it. Um, If you just go to our webpage, you'll be able to see our notes. You'll see our pieces. You'll see our pro tier. Everything is there. One-stop shop. Our about page describes all our offering. We are 100% subscriber supported. We accept no ads and and do no sponsorship work, which uh, nothing wrong with those business models, but we believe this allows us to be as free editorially and provocative as we need to be to get our message out there. And uh, we live and die by our subscribers. And so if anybody listening wants to give us a shot, we'd certainly appreciate your business.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time here today. And for anybody wanting to watch part two of this, you can find that over at peakprosperity.com. And we would welcome seeing you there. Doomberg, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris.